Crazy Chester Radio Hour, the podcast where I talk to soulful individuals who made their mark in music in Muscle Shoals, Nashville, and beyond. Thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Russell Mefford. Russell Mefford is the leader of the Fiddleworms, one of the great bands coming out of North Alabama, and certainly one of my favorite bands. I had the honor of producing their latest album, the live album Perfect Storm, that we recorded at the Nut House a few years ago, with Jimmy Nut behind the board. And that's how I got to know Russell and his bandmates. Russell is also a third generation jeweler who's running his family business, Mefford Jewelers, in Florence, Alabama, where he's been developing many music related pieces of jewelry and accessories that are just great and I would like to urge anyone to check out Mefford Jewelers when you go down to Muscle Shoals. Russell's also been the mastermind of live shows highlighting the connection of Muscle Shoals music and the Beatles last year and this year's show celebrating the intersection of the Rolling Stones and Muscle Shoals music. It's my pleasure of having Russell as the guest of today's episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, Russell Mefford. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Man, I'm glad to be here, Andreas. Thank you, man. You're one of the most original voices, both as a singer and a songwriter here in this town. And to me, that says a lot because there's so much talent coming out of here and it's just like every time I hear one of your songs and we'll talk about some of these songs I'm sure uh, it's just like that's so cool and that's right in our backyard here. Well I'm honored you dig it man thank you I am I'm happy to check you know to chase the bus we've got a bus full of of talent here and um a lot of it has come to the forefront because of you, so thank you, man. Well, uh, you know, this is a, it's just a special place with the whole history and a lot of people connected to even like, you know, kind of mythical things like the river, but whatever it is, there's just a wealth of music and talent coming out of here. Now, what, what interests me is like, when you grew up and first caught the music book, what were you exposed to musically, or what 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 was like the, the the world around you when you kind of first got exposed to music and started loving music? I guess the first thing I always loved music, but there was a song called Raindrops that, for whatever reason, I loved that song as a 
really small child and I had a little bitty record player and I would play that song over and over and over again to the point where it would turn up missing, you know, for a couple days, I think just to save my parents' sanity. Um, and then, you know, a little while later, I was a John Denver fan. That was one of the first shows I saw. I think the first show I ever saw was with my parents. We were up in Nashville at a jewelry show and Ronnie Millsap performed. And uh, I was blown away, man. He is, you know, stood up on top of his piano and was just a real showman. And I found out years later that Marie Louie uh, was part of that show as well, which was awesome. Yeah, and there's even more Muscle Shoals connection with one of his biggest hits. No Getting Over Me, yeah. That Walt Aldridge, here, here a local songwriter, wrote that and was huge number one hit in yeah, great the song. early 80s. Great song, man. And then from there, you know, I, um, I love Marvel Comics growing up. And that's what I think was so ingenious about Kiss. You know, I was a huge Kiss fan. Um, that kind of showed me a little bit of kind of the show business side of it, you know. They wore those platform shoes and the makeup. Um, so they were like superheroes. And I had heard where they were kind of put off that <laughs> there were all these 9- to 12-year-old kids showing up to their shows, you know, and they would rather, I'm sure they would rather have had 19-year-old girls, <laughs> which I'm sure they had plenty of those too, man. But there were a lot of us kids that love Kiss, I mean, I even cleaned out my whole closet and had kind of a kiss shrine with posters and collected the bubblegum cards. Um, so kind of eclectic from the, from the beginning, you know. How old were you when you actually started making music rather than just loving music? I actually didn't start playing guitar until I was 15. So um, I would, you know write poems and sing things in my head and um, I would sit in my room and bounce on my bed in fact it drove my parents crazy because I would wreck mattresses just sit in the same place and bounce to these songs and envision what it would be like to be in a band you know um, in fact kind of the set list for our cover band Johnny Rotten Cash a lot of the songs take me back to those days as a kid sitting in the room listening to Give Me Some Truth by John Lennon, you know, or Destroyer by the Kinks, so. Yeah, and then was it not too long after that where you, uh, and I might not have to complete the right thing, you can tell me, went to a type of camp and got uh, introduced to somebody that's shaped your musical, like, evolution quite a bit. I did. It was a... Um I had gone to a camp in Alabama, and um, and I had a, you know, they had really young, the counselors there were not much older than we were, and um, I just picked the wrong day to short sheet a counselor's bed, you know, and so uh, the counselor had lost some kind of volleyball game or something they were doing, and he came back, and he, he really beat me up pretty bad, and uh, and ripped the sheets off my bed and stuff so I had mailed a letter um, you know because there weren't any you weren't weren't able to call or anything like that so I mailed a letter to my mom just saying hey could you send me some sheets and that concerned them so they called the camp and and um, so after that 
it was a pretty rough time and and um, so they wanted me to have a good experience in that type of environment and really try probably to keep me out of trouble during the summertime so my sister um, is a whitewater paddler and she was a guide on the Nanahala and the Okoe and they asked her about it and she was really impressed with the uh, paddlers that were coming out of a camp called Mondamon which is right outside of Hendersonville in fact a lot of that their paddling staff like paddles for the Olympics you know so they sent me up there to learn how to uh, kayak paddle white water and on the way to the camp Jan Brand who ran the they called it Taj after Taj Mahal it was like the center where you went and got your mail and stuff uh, she asked me what I was into and I just started playing guitar and I was like man I love music and she said well there's a guy on the maintenance staff named Waz and uh, it turned out that Waz was going through a divorce and as you know as musicians like we can tell you what's going on for the next two or three months but not after that and so they were going to try to make him pay for the fact that he didn't have a steady gig so he he uh, or a long term he couldn't tell them six months out what his work schedule was like so he got a job at the main for the maintenance staff at the camp under the name William Zeal which is his name but nobody knows him as William Zeal so uh, word got out he played guitar I guess in front of a couple of the maintenance guys and word got out who he was and so Jan Brown was like yeah this guy you know he played with Jimi Hendrix and BB King so I ended up never getting in a boat, you know. I, I, uh, the second day I was there, I was coming back from my swim test. I had my bathing suit on, dripping wet, and there's a guy. I just looked at him, I was like, that's got to be Waz, you know. And he was emptying a, a trash can into a dumpster. And I said, are you Waz? And he said, yeah. And I said, have you ever made a record? And he said, yeah, actually, you know, I've, I've made two records so far. And I said, man, that would, that's crazy cool. It would be crazy cool to make a record. And he said, well, okay, man, one day we'll make one. First time I met him. And uh, so he really pushed me. We would do morning assemblies at the camp. And he would, you know, the day before, we would go over what we were going to do the next day. And most of the time I wasn't prepared. But he'd be like, too bad you're doing that tomorrow morning so I would work and work and work all day and uh, and into the night to be prepared for morning assembly the next day and that really helped me out and uh, and he would tell me things because I told him you know I don't know how to read music and he said you know there were people writing music before and playing music before there were people writing down how to play music so he always lifted me up and um, so that's, you know, the second year I came back to that camp, we recorded a song over in Greenville, South Carolina, called Bullets Tune. That was one of the first songs that I had written. And, um, and then uh, from then on, you know, my plan was when I got out of college, while I was in college, Waz would stay with me when he was touring. And, uh, and we ended up... I wrote a song called Attitude and another song called Easy Girl and Waz thought they were good songs. And that was the first one, my Attitude was the first song my dad really liked. 
that's another reason I respect my dad so much is he didn't sugarcoat anything. I would, I, I probably played a hundred songs to him before I had written Attitude, you know. And I, he said, that one's not bad, you know. So Waz suggested that he thought they were worth recording and he reached out to Johnny Sandlin and we booked some time over in Decatur at Duct Tape. And uh, that's where I first met Scott Boyer. I guess I was 19 years old. And also met B.W. Wheeler. And um, Jeff and Susan Sauls were part of the decoys at that time. Um, and uh, B.W. was the drummer. Johnny was playing bass. And um, they were wonderful. So hold that thought real quick was that session in in south carolina was that your first time in a recording studio yes yes and you, i believe you cut two songs over there i did and there was a 45 of some sort that you pressed up we did time. we did we um in fact i've still got a couple boxes of them man but but uh and we took a picture out on ghost bridge which was kind of a mythical place here in town and uh the A side was Bullets Tune, and then the B side was called Mind Over Money, I think is what that song was called. But it was the first time in the studio, um, and I was scared to death, but again, uh, you know, so much of the studio is who you're with in the room, you know? And it was a comfortable place, and of course, Waz made, you know, made it good, made, it, made me feel comfortable and and uh, a lot easier to climb inside the song when you're in that kind of environment. Uh, talking about Wes, and you mentioned his two uh, albums, but would you mind telling a little bit more about kind of what kind of guy he was and what kind of his musical history up to that point was? Yeah, he's Wes is from Tampa, Florida, and he is a blues player. Um, you know, now I think it's pretty typical for people to play, you know, do loops and that sort of thing, but he was kind of a grassroots version of that. He would play tambourine with his foot and blow harmonica and play dobro, or he had an Epiphone electric that he plays, and great slide player using different tunings. When I first met him, he was touring with John Hammond, you know, uh, and, uh, but before that, he was, uh, he was in a band, and they were signed to uh, some kind of publishing deal where they were pitching songs, and they were supposed to cut Abraham, Martin, and John was the song. And Waz was really excited about it, and he said he had done a cool heart part to it, and they ended up giving that song to, I think, Dion ended up recording that yeah. song. And so the next song that they pitched to him was uh, Me and You and a Dog Named... Blue, is that what it is? Boo or blue, anyway. And when I said the only way he would do that song is if he could wear a paper bag <laughs> over his head in the studio. <laughs> so um, he's just one of those guys that, um, you know, when I got out of college, I drove down to Tampa. I wanted to start a band with Waz. And uh, we did a recording project down there that really was the only way that I ever became a fiddle worm, you know. Without that project, that never would have happened. Um, and, 
you know, he called, he's kind of got like he called me and said, hey, I'm playing a show in Mobile and drove down there and went to dinner and it was with Leo Kotke, you know, and we had dinner with him and he opened for Leo Kotke and um, so Waz was definitely respected in the industry and and uh, just a kind, beautiful, talented human being. I believe he also made an album with Roy Bookbinder, who was he produced kind it. of a folkier version of John Hammond, if you will. Yeah, the Roy Bookbinder and the Hillbilly Blues uh, Devils or something like that, man. But yeah, he, he produced a record on Roy Bookbinder. Um, and of course, you know, he was telling me that Hendrix was real nice when he came to town that he would have local blues acts open for him. So he opened for Hendrix twice. Uh, you know, played with B.B. King, just to, and he's still out there doing it, you know, man. He's down in Tampa, and um, I don't talk to him as much as I'd like to, but that's the great thing about Facebook these days is we can kind of touch base and see where, where each other is at. And you took him up here to HandyFest at least once, right? Yeah, Nancy Gaunts brought him. He, he and a young lady named Sandy had a duo, and... Uh, I think they kind of stole the show the first time they came up here and you know they were also a love interest and when that split up they kind of they went their separate ways um, but he's played Handy Festival you know at least three times not three or four times and uh, but yeah yeah I owe, I owe a whole lot to Waz um, and you know in college he came and stayed for I don't know two months, um, because when we rec when we cut Attitude and Easy Girl, Johnny uh, expressed some interest in me, and so Waz was like, "You got to keep writing." So he didn't get go back home to Tampa. It drove my roommate a little crazy, but we just wrote, and that's where when Waz came up with Tension, which ended up being on the Yellowhammer record, but uh, and a lot of the songs. Um, he would help me with. He would help, like, you know, you need to work on that part. You need to, you know. Um, and uh, so he, I would definitely consider him not only a friend but a mentor. Yeah. So what happened after this Johnny Sandlin project? Waz was part of that, too. He played sure. on it, right? Yeah, he put the musicians together. I mean, I had uh, David Kaminsky, um, who is an ER doctor up in the Carolinas, uh, was I met him at the camp, and he's a great bass player, and so he he played bass on that track. Uh, John Bloomer played drums on that track. John's plays with Will and Kelvin and those guys, and is an incredible, talented musician here in the Shoals. Always said he could play like Stuart Copeland and sing like Sting, you know. <laughs> but um, and uh, and and then Waz played guitar, and. Uh, and after we cut those, uh, my dad, kind of realizing that this was not just a whim, you know, and that I was serious about it, was able to get uh, Sam Phillips' address over in Memphis. So I mailed him a cassette tape and came home from class one day, and there was a message on my machine, and it said, hey, this is Sam Phillips. You know, we give me a call? And uh, I danced all around my dorm room, and called him up and he said that I had a very unusual writing style and uh, of course I was like well I'll move to Memphis right now Mr. Phillips and he was like man you know 
you need to keep writing. Um, I've retired, but I'm going to pass these songs along to my sons. And you may hear from them, you may not, but don't stop what you're doing. And for a 19-year-old kid, that shows what kind of man he was. I mean, to take the time to do that was talk about building your confidence, you know. So, And about a week or two later, uh, Jerry Phillips called, and they tried to pitch those songs for me. And uh, I think at one point, Eddie Rabbit had a hold on Easy Girl. We never had anything cut, but that um, that was a real shot in the arm for me to keep moving forward, you know. And somebody else got to hear your music too. Was that around the same time? Who would that be, man? Jerry Wexler. No, that was later, actually, man. That was later. I, I, um, um, Jerry Wexler. You know, the funny thing was, I, you know, my brother put up with me for a long time because, you know, music did interfere with nine to five kind of jobs. Um, when Chris and I were together, and we were playing six days a week, and you know. I was not on time, <laughs> um, so. But my brother is really one of the big reasons that I got into music. I mean, he he has a record collection. It's probably worth more than everything in our jewelry store, you know, man. And so, being 15 years older than me, he was the one who introduced me to the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and and uh, Bob Dylan and the Allman Brothers. I mean, I'm just the list as long as the day and so when Chris passed away and we decided to go ahead and release the Yellowhammer record there was a real outpouring for the community to try to get that out there and to uh, and, and to get Chris out there for people to know who he was <clears throat> and uh, so Ronnie Knight called and gave me uh, Jerry Wexler's address and I mailed him a copy of Yellowhammer. And uh, I was coming back from lunch at the store, and it was just perfect timing, you know, man. I walked through the door, and the phone's ringing, and my brother answers the phone, says, you know, I'm Mefford Jewelers. And I could see the look on his face, you know. He said, hold on just a minute. And he put the person on hold, and he put the phone down, and he said, Russell, Jerry Wexler's on line one for you. <laughs> and, um, he was so awesome. I mean, he gave me his Florida address and his New York address and told me he wanted me to mail a copy of the record uh, to Phil Walden at Capricorn. No, no, that's not true. That's not true. He told me to mail him a couple copies of the record, that he had a couple people that he, he said he had somebody at Atlantic he wanted to mail it to and somebody at Capricorn he wanted to mail it to. And so about two weeks later, um, Phil Walden called and uh, you know I explained the situation it was it was a, a very strange and 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 trying time for everybody involved in that you know we had this record that we put out and the spiritual force behind that record was no longer with us and then we had this other incredibly talented guitar player Rob Malone who just you know, we were playing as a three-piece without a guitar player. Just We didn't know what to do. We had all these gigs, just played, and Rob just showed up and said, I'll do it. And Rob was just as close to Chris as we all were. And so it was difficult for all of us to play those songs, but I can't imagine for him because he made the decision that he was not going to play those songs the way Chris would play them. 
he thought that would be an insult to Chris. It was so fresh and, you know what I mean, it, it was so raw that we had just lost him that he decided, I'm going to play these songs the way I would play them. And it was totally different. And people pushed back against that. But it was the most beautiful thing he could have done for us. It really allowed us to heal. And, you know, I always said, like, music was always my escape where I could go when things were bad. And when that happened, when we lost Chris, it was like, I felt like somebody was standing on my chest. It was like it was such a burden and a labor to sing these songs and to go and play. And through Rob doing what he did, um, he helped us heal. And then to the point to where, you know, when Mitch Mann came in, who is uh, more in the vein of how Chris would play, um, it turned into a celebration of who Chris was and what these songs are. Um, so I guess we've always stumbled through the dark and, and that's always worked the best for us. Anything that I've ever tried to plan or map out is, has usually failed miserably. <laughs> but after you recorded that album and then Chris passed, you put the fiddle on, on, on hold for a while, right? Well, we, we continued on because we had uh, the night, uh, we had, there was a big street party, um, May the 26th, 1996, we played, uh, and there were supposed to be record labels coming out, and they had called before the show. We had, you know, city stages, we had you know, shows, we had all these shows for the summer and in the fall booked and we had given these guys a list of these shows and so they were like well, we're going to catch you at you know we're going to catch you one of these shows and so um that night after you know chris passed away early uh, the show was actually on the 25th and chris passed away early on the 26th we uh, took one weekend off and then decided we would go ahead and play so we played all those shows Rob came in, and Rob was with us for about a year, I guess, and um, that's when, and then he, like I said, I can't imagine the burden it was for him to, to do what he did, and he came in, he was like, man, I, you know, I just, I, I can't do this right now, you know, and so he moved to Athens, and Mitch came in and played guitar, and around that time, my mom got very sick, and uh, and I felt like I needed to be home. And so we uh, shelved the Fiddle Arms project. And uh, all of us kept playing. Matt and Scott moved to Huntsville and met Mike Roberts and formed Five O'Clock Charlie. And Mitch and I continued playing acoustic. And um, so I guess for about eight years we were dormant. You also had a band called Kenny and Decinos for a while. Right? Yes, we did. Yeah, that was before the Worms got back together. That was I. Um, I got to meet David McKay, man. He uh, he's from San Francisco, and married uh, Donna Jean Thatcher, who's from Sheffield, and uh, Donna and David had moved back to Florence, 
in the 80s, but I didn't meet them until, gosh, early 2000, I guess, maybe, man. So David started sitting in with us. Uh, it was me and Mitch and uh, a drummer named Tom Risher. Tom was a fabulous drummer, wrote the drum lines at the University of North Alabama for forever, and, and um, through that, we ended up forming Kenny and the C-Nuts with this guy. Kelvin Holly. Kelvin Holly. <laughs> hey, man. And, and, and His uh, ears must have been burning. <laughs> that's right. You, you say C-Notes and they will come. That's what we hope. Yeah. But, but no, I, uh, I think the name of the band is why Kelvin and Donna wanted to be in the band. You know, we, we had a, kind of a local character named Kenny Neese who... His, uh, his family owns real estate, and they had, were leasing or renting a place to a guy out on the river, and he had abandoned his house, and Kenny went out to uh, clean out the house and put on a jacket and stuck his hand inside the jacket and pulled out 36 $100 bills. And he is one of the nicest, most giving people you'll ever meet. I mean, if he has money, he's going to give it to you, and that's... I mean, there are times I'll be like, Kenny, don't put that 100 bill in my tip jar because you know he needs it too, but he's he's going to give it to you or he's going to give you his jacket off his bag. So he went out with this money and paid all his tabs and bought people drinks and dinner. And I mean, he'll come into a bar and go, set them up and buy people shots. So when all these places went to deposit, make their deposits on Monday, it turned out it was counterfeit. Um, so anyway, I thought, what a great name for a band, Kenny and the C-Notes. So we, uh, we played a couple shows and I sold out what was then called the Keynote Room. And uh, Gary Baker recorded that show. Um, is, it, is his called Cell Block? What is his sound cell? What is his studio called? Noise Block. Oh, noise Block. And they had, they had a snake running from his studio into that. Uh, Heath Colcock was the one who owned that venue at that time, and they were kind enough to record us, and then Russ Randolph uh, from Boombox mixed that for us. The next Fiddle Worms album was Year of the Cock, and that, was that already recorded by that point? No, we had gone up to uh, Steve Backus, who's an attorney from uh, Tuscumbia, had heard us play, and and he bought us that 1974 Buick LeSabre orange limousine we used to ride around in and a PA system and paid to have us like he would pay for our meals and our hotel room I mean he really helped us out and he had suggested that Rodney Good and uh, Mitch Shedd they had a studio up in Nashville called Revolution and he talked them into coming down to hear us play at a place called The Corner over in Huntsville and they dug it so um they had us come up to Nashville um, to record. So, and then eventually that came out and became the second Fiddleworms album. Oh, no, that, yeah, that was Yellowhammer. And so after, actually Rodney and Mitch and those guys opened the show the night that Chris passed away, the, a band they were calling the Ethiopians, and both of us were trying to get a record deal, you know. So, and Rodney and Mitch, Mitch's dad's a guy called Harold Shedd who was, 
a guy up in Nashville, and he was kind of, they were in Russ Russ Zavitson, and those guys were kind of orchestrating all that, and uh, so they were actually asleep at Scott and Matt's when all that went down, and so Rodney called me two months later, and he's like, "Y'all want to come up and just cut something, you know?" So we went up and we cut three or four songs with Rob on guitar and Chalmers was still playing keys. And uh, and then after we disbanded, I mean, it was, uh, I'd actually forgotten about it. And uh, during the Kenny and the C-Notes time, Mitch called me because Rodney ended up marrying a country artist named Jamie O'Neill and James LeBlanc was playing guitar for them. And James ended up leaving and Mitch had heard about it and asked if I would call Rodney to see if they were looking for a guitar player, and if so, if I might put in a word for him. So when I called Rodney, he was like, man, I'm, we're doing a duo thing, me and Jamie, right now. I'm not sure what we're going to do, but I've got these songs. Do you want to come up and finish that record? So um, that's when I called Rob and all the fellas, and Mitch came, and Mike Roberts, and Chalmers came from Mississippi, and... Chris's dad, Carol, came up and played mandolin and sang backgrounds on a song. And uh, and we finished that record. I didn't know what we were going to call it, so I was over at a Chinese restaurant here in town. It's called the Peking, and they had this menu where it had the Chinese zodiac signs on it, you know. And I was like, oh, well, I'm the monkey, you know, and <laughs> looking around. And I was like, well, I wonder what Chris is. And I looked, and it said he was the cock. And uh, so I was like perfect you know I was like we'll call the record Year of the Cock and uh, it took forever to get that record mixed and I was so disappointed that it took I wanted it to come out in 2002 or, or I can't remember when it, anyway it came out a year after I thought it was going to but it turned out the year it came out was actually the Year of the Cock which um, so things happen the way they're supposed to you know yeah, and then after that you did a live record called Live Bait, and then after that one called Volkswagen Catfish, where uh, Kelvin Holly has a guest spot on what is my, maybe my favorite fiddleworm song, which is called The Noble Eye. That's, yeah, Kelvin not only played lead on that song, but he also lent us instruments, and... Uh, I'm here to help. Yeah, the first, first time... I mean, I would go over and listen to Scott and Kelvin play. They played a lot over at the filling station as a duo. And, uh, you know, we, Chris and I, we would go over there and listen to try to learn, you know. And, and then, of course, Tuesday nights at Union Station were, you know, it, it may sound cliche, but it really was like going to church, you know. You would go over there and listen to those guys play, and, and you knew you had a lot of work to do, you know. So... Yeah. When and we, you mentioned Scott Boyer earlier, too, who was in the decoys with, with Kelvin. Yes. And you ended up writing a few songs with him too. You had my favorite one is called "Don't, Don't Shoot the Prophet." Right on. But yeah. But then there's also one you wrote with him and, and Donnie Fritz called "I Need a Change," and then you revived that song, right? The partnership, right before he passed to write a few more. We did. It's like he was on fire, man. I mean, you were part of that, too. I know you and Mitch went over and wrote with him. That, um, by the way, that Stop Subtracting song is 
Was that the last song y'all wrote with him? Yes, Mitch and I. Yeah. Yeah. That song is awesome. I mean, I'm. He was I'm, on. He was on fire that day too. He just sit there in his chair, just kind of spitting out the lyrics, you know. And it's like, that's pretty yeah. good. <laughs> Life itself is hard enough. Yeah. Some beautiful lyrics and. Um, but in his in typical Scott man, like. I was so excited. I was at Dick Cooper's, and he was like, "Hey, man, you and I ought to write a song together." Because I never would have asked, you know. I mean, that's Scott Boyer, you know, man. So I was crazy excited about it. And after we wrote the song, I went over to his house. He was living. I thought he was still in the A-frame, but he wasn't. He was over. He was still off of Brush Creek Road over there, but it was that smaller house over. And we went over there and wrote together and. Shortly thereafter, we were hanging out, and I was like, man, you know, thank you so much for asking me to write with you, man. You don't, and that means so much to me. And he was like, well, you're only five miles down the road, you know. <laughs> so, so he's like, I figure, what the heck, you know. So, um, so I got to write with him by proximity, I guess, yeah. man. But he asked me to write again, and brought he brought Donnie along, and we had breakfast at the Killing Diner, and... And that's a Donnie Fritz song. I mean, you can listen to it. Donnie sat down at the keyboard and he had, you know, woke up to the same old sunrise and had the verse and the chorus and Scott and I just a couple chord change suggestions and lyrics here and there. And, and that uh, ended up on the See the Light album, which if the Philharms ever made a concept album, that was that's the concept album because it's like, it takes you on a trip and it has like, you know the whole horn players on it it's really probably your most eclectic record i would think yeah yeah we had a lot of help on that one man we had and i had something in my head i just so many you know with the downloading things now everybody just listens to songs so i was like i wanted to tr for us to try to put something together with the idea that you would sit and listen to it in its entirety you know so um and three jimmy nut i um he turned me on to what's called a Zoom unit, which was a digital recording a piece of equipment that you can carry around with you. So I literally walked around with that Zoom unit for a year and a half recording buses passing down, cicadas, thing, everything, as much as I could capture from the shoals as far as natural sounds. In fact, the origin of that idea was uh, from Jimmy Nutt. He had the idea of us recording the river, recording cicadas, different natural sounds from this area and uh, and then asking people like Spooner or Kelvin or Donnie uh, to come in and listen to that and play what that sounded like to them and we were going to call it a nature of the muse was the idea which we haven't done yet but but uh, so from that um, I started recording all these sounds and then again Jimmy Nutt is so great that um, Rob and I wrote a song called Vicksburg and we wanted to kind of tip the cap to Johnny Cash and the Sun Record guys you know like this you're typical this guy loves the girl she hooks up with a loser a guy kills the loser and then you know guy goes to prison and at the end of the song I heard like a band marching down the street playing in a parade so I called Lloyd Jones who's the band director at the University of Alabama, North Alabama, University of North Alabama, and uh, 
ask him if he would like to, if they might want to be involved in it, there'd be a way to kind of merge what's going on at the university with professional recording of music. And uh, the trick was to figure out how, you know, we, uh, the band is so big, it's over 200 people, so you, you know, Jimmy didn't have 200 sets of headphones, you know, so Jimmy came up with the idea of, I guess kind of a la Tusk, to go out to Brawley Stadium, and he set up a mobile unit, and uh, Will Corey helped with that, and uh, basically anybody who had a quality you know, mobile recording device, we set them up all around the stadium and, and recorded the band playing at the end of that song. So. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's around the time I met you guys and I fell in love with with the band. And that, me not really, at that point, I didn't know about all of the history. I just, what was happening there in the present with that band, with Mitch and Rob both playing lead guitar. I was like, this is awesome. And I, uh, one day I, I guess I just, hey, you know, would be really neat if you guys had a live record like this. And we actually ended up making this record at the Nut House with Jimmy Nuts. And it was great, man. Yeah, you actually, that was when you had, when I first heard of you, you were, you were taking the All-Stars over to Italy. And, um, and I just thought, how great is that? You know, we've, you know, we were talking about how with Scott Campbell, how the artwork that he provides for this area now with all the posters that he does and the album art that he, you know, he just did the small town big sound art. Uh, he's done art for us. He's done art for James LeBlanc. Uh, he did art for the new Billy Ray Cyrus record. Anyway, we, to my knowledge, we've never had that, and now we do. And we also never had a promoter for somebody to go out and, and scream to the world that Muscle Shoals is a cool place. So the re the you know the renaissance of Muscle Shoals, I know you're a humble man, but it falls a lot of it falls in your lap with taking the music out there. You took it to Italy, and then you were you were about to take the guys up to the Lincoln Center in New York, and you had asked if I would sell tickets out of my store. We had met, and I or I offered to do it. I can't remember how it went down, but I you know I was like sure, because you did kind of a warm up show at the Marriott before y'all went up there and you um he said hey well where are you you know are y'all playing anytime soon i was like yeah we're you know we're playing at the chicken shack over at champies and you and rachel came out to hear us and then you uh offered to you know produce a record on us and so we had never had anybody produce a record on us it was always you know we it it takes us three years or so to make a record because it's if, if you've never made one, it's maybe hard to wrap your brain around, but it, it's really hard to make a record. It is. Um, and anybody who's who's done one, man, you should feel great because it's, it's not an easy thing to do, anything from writing to recording to the artwork to, I mean, it's all, it, it's all, and, and it's your baby, so you carry it with you everywhere, you know. Yeah. Um, we recorded two nights at the North House. And uh, all of your biggest fans pretty much were there. And your dad turned 91 that night of the show. And he sat in the front row there. And it was like, it kind of, I mean, with me not really knowing the whole history as much as you do, obviously, 
maybe I shouldn't say it kind of felt like full circle, but it kind of, from my perspective, it certainly did. And that's why we ended up, and I think that was your idea. No. Calling it Perfect Storm. Oh, per- yeah, that was my idea. But the thing with my dad was you. That was a, you know, I was like, man, my dad's coming and he, he's turning 91 today. And you're like, we got to get him a cake. Yeah. And, and the- you guys ended up playing the Beatles birthday song. Right on. Uh, which I thought was cool. And but you could tell how, you know, proud he was. It was just like such a cool moment. It was, it was, it was perfect, man. So, so. While we were talking about your dad, and you mentioned earlier how important he was, you know, to you and is, um, but there's like a second love in your life that actually is a, is a family tradition, going back to your grandparents that uh, opened a jewelry store here in uh, in Florence, and you've been running that store for the past five or six years. Well, we just passed our four-year anniversary in November, but. My grandfather actually went to work in a jewelry store on Court Street in Florence in 1911. When he was uh, he was just a kid, he was 11 years old, and he was running errands and that sort of thing for Mr. Brown. It was A. Brown and Sons Jewelers, and Mr. Brown was kind enough to teach my grandfather how to do jewelry repair. So that's how we got started. And he worked for Mr. Brown. At some point, Mr. Brown retired, and a gentleman named J. W. Summers opened a store on Court Street. And he worked for Mr. Summers. And then when he came back from World War II, he and my grandmother, Julia, opened the first Mefford Jewelers uh, street over over on Seminary Street in 1945. And my dad, who's 94 now, uh, always kids that we worked our way back around to Court Street. So we're back on Court Street. And, uh, I, you know, the store closed in de- December of 2013, and the reason that I'm here is because of this area and this community. I mean, there were people who actually bought the building and called me and said, we bought this building because we want to put you in it. I mean, it's been crazy how, um, what a giving community we have. So, um, I'd never run my own store before, so it's been neat to be able to put music in the store. I wanted to put as much of, of this area of music in the store as people were willing and, and I mean you know we did the Muscle Shoals watches which I mean how cool is it to have a David Hood watch in your store and a Sam yeah. Phillips watch and that's a partnership with those families Jimmy Johnson Roger Hawkins Barry Beckett Donna Jean Gacho Rick Hall they all came in with me and as a partnership uh, for these watches and uh, it's the only place on earth that you can get them so I'm extremely proud to carry them and and uh, and you know and those are I want to do watches on everybody it's just it's very expensive to get something like that off the ground so I was trying to think of something I could do that I could have more control over so I came up with these sterling silver keychains and um are able to have people come in and sign, and I can take their actual signature, and we put that on one side of it's in the shape of a guitar pick, and put their signature on one side, and on the back side of it, where there's a Muscle Shoals logo that Evans artist Evans Wall, who works with us, created, and uh, and we have an Andreas Werner guitar pick. We've got a Pete Carr 
Mitch yeah, more Mayer. importantly, like Peacock, hey, Jimmy John. You, you guys, know, you know. guys are all important, <laughs> man. And it was really neat. But, I, you know, we uh, Jimbo, Jimbo Hart from the 400 unit came in last week or the week before, and and uh, signed on, and he posted about it. And uh, so, actually, today, right before I came over here, I mailed a Jimbo Hart and a David Hood uh, pick over uh, to the UK. So that's the first ones going out of the country. That's yeah. great. And you know, we talked about full circle before. To me, that's full circle too, because you get to combine these two, you know, main things of your life, and turn it into one. And it's really the coolest. You know, muscle shells. Swag is not the right word, but like art, jewelry, you know, memento for anyone to have because it's like, first of all, it's unique and it's authentic and it's just like something you, yeah, you just can't get anywhere else. Yeah, and everybody has stuff, so to me, if it has a story behind it, man, and um, and so yeah, it's an honor to carry that stuff in the store, man. We're almost at the end here, but this year, early this year, you put together a Muscle Shoals meets the Beatles show, which was this big concert with with the Philworms, but also the decoys and a lot of other guest artists performing Beatles songs that have, you know, some sort of a connection with Muscle Shoals, and uh, that was just kind of you know one of the great musical highlights of this past year for me and for anybody here in town, and now. You're working on a, and I'm not even going to say anything because I want you to. Oh, we're excited. We're going to do uh, February 23rd. We're going to do Muscle Shoals meets the Rolling Stones. So, um, you know, the, the, the Beatles thing again happened just, I couldn't have planned it. You know, I had two charities approach me about three years ago, wanting the fiddle worms to play a benefit. And I told them, you know, my guys are, you know, me and Johnny are really the only ones that have a steady day gig. The rest of the guys, they're full-time musicians, and i got to pay those guys. And I don't want to take money out of the charity's pocket. And it has to be an event. It can't just be us at a bar somewhere. So I always thought it was cool that the Beatles introduced me to my own music. That the first time that I heard author Alexander, it was John Lennon singing it. first time I heard Carl Perkins' songs, it was George Harrison singing them. And um, so anyway, they taught me about my my home, and I thought that was a neat concept. And then you've got such killer players here. You know, you got Charles Rose and Harvey Thompson and the Horns who played with John Lennon at Madison Square Garden. You got Kelvin Holly and David Hood. I mean, Kelvin played on a session with Klaus Foreman. Uh, David was on that session too, and of course David uh, played on the Aretha Franklin version of let it be he was he didn't play the track but he was on the session for the hey jude he was telling me they had multiples uh that day for um and then uh so anyway i was drinking at a bar and a guy who owns a, a car business came up and said he had cover bands wanting him to sponsor a show and um did i have an idea for a show and I was like, you know, that was like two years prior these people had approached me about doing this concert, and I could never figure out financially how to do it. And uh, I was like, yeah, man. I said, if you don't mind me asking, how much are they asking for? And he's like, well, they 
asking for $3,500 from me and $3,500 from CBNS Bank. I was like, man, I think I could put on a pretty cool show, you know, man, for that. And so I called all the guys, and they were willing to be a part of it, and we were able to to pay the musicians, pay Scott Campbell to do the artwork, pay Corey Hanna to make the video, pay Russ Randolph to mix the sound, pay to have extra sound brought in. And it, it made the, the charities a little nervous because they were like, hey, once we had this sponsorship money and they're like what are you gonna do with it and I was like well I'm gonna pay everybody and they're like they were nervous and I and once they explained it to me I was nervous too I, I insisted that that's the way we should do it but I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't lay in bed at night thinking gosh if this show only raises a thousand dollars you know and I've spent all that but that's not what happened and uh, we're able to give each charity 11 grand and so uh, so we're gonna do it again this February man yeah <clears throat> well we're at the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for spending this past hour with me. And I wish you just the best of luck with the Muscle Souls Meets the Rolling Stones show. I'm sure it's going to be a, a blast and as much over the top great as the last one was. Can I ask one more thing, man? Absolutely. The, uh, I had people come in. They said they thought the most original part of the show last year was when you and Donnie Fritz came out and did Come Together. Was that your idea? Who? No, it was not my idea. When you ask Donnie, and I was like sitting with him, and he said, you know, I don't even know that many Beatles songs, but there's only this one that I, I think I might be able to do. And he didn't know what it was called. He was something like, he come up, that's come together. I mean, he <laughs> had it. And then I'm like, yeah, it is perfect. Yeah. I mean, he was perfect. And the funny thing too is, not just on that show, ever since he like gets asked to do this song because everybody remembers him doing that song. Yeah, it was great. And it's funny, we we kind of obviously, you know, just making fun, but we introduced it as and now Donnie's gonna sing a song that John Lennon wrote for him. It sounds like it, absolutely. <laughs> so it's his it was his idea, absolutely. And then uh yeah, he uh he pulled it off back by the by your band. So uh well, yeah, so we had. I think Jimmy Nutt was playing drums on that, and and you were you had a percussion thing that you had gotten from Mickey, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't have one, so I had to. Uh, what was that, man? A little slap. Yeah, it's cool. Thing. It was awesome. Awesome. So, uh, well, Andreas, thank yeah. you, man. Thank you, and uh, I'm sure there's going to be many great musical memories to be made in the future. Right on. <laughs> This was the 44th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We recorded it at the Florence Lauderdale Tourism Visitor Center in Florence, Alabama. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to check out some of our other episodes and subscribe to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour on iTunes or check it out on SoundCloud, YouTube, TuneIn, or Stitcher. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Until next week.